Welcome to episode 26 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's fastest growing film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and with me tonight from Gainesville, Florida, a man who is still trying to figure out the plot to the Batman, Mr. Anthony Rowe. How are you doing tonight, Anthony? Oh, uh, had a bit of excitement today. We had a four-foot alligator coming up the driveway and heading towards our dogs this morning. Oh my goodness. Did it eat anything? As you know, Janet said, uh, she took care of it. And from the gas capital of the Southern Hemisphere, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos, have you finished going through all of the packages you've been receiving lately? I've gone through the ones I've received. I'm still expecting quite a few more, so I'm looking forward to the postman visiting every day. Finally, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, a man who measures his gas not by the number of cameras, but by the number of boxes of cameras, Mr. Paul Reibel. Has the post office gotten you your own personal zip code yet? Let's just say that, you know, we're, we're getting closer and closer to being roommates every day. We've had back-to-back-to-back episodes with awesome discussions about large-format Polaroid cameras, trips to Europe, and an amazing discussion about the history of digital cameras. It's been a while since anyone has talked about gear we've gotten or are playing with. It looks like we have a number of people in the waiting room, so let's open the gates and let some people in. Full house. Looks like we have some returning listeners and a few new faces that I've never seen before. We'll start with the returning ones, Mr. Robert Rodoloni. Hey, Robert, how you doing? I also see Miles Lieback. Hey, Miles, how you doing? Well, good to see everyone. All right, excellent. Dan Tree, are you there? Oh. No, he's still connecting. Is that Wayne Stipers? Oh, he's waving. Looks like Wayne was on our Euro episode last time. I could see his face, but no audio right now. Uh, some first-time listeners, uh, Aiden Dean. Hey there, Mike. How are you? How you doing? You want to introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Aiden Dean. I'm from East Texas, and i um just been collecting for a little bit. Excellent. Nothing too crazy. So yeah. so a new conductor. All right, well, this is the show to be. Uh, you're, you're, hide your wallet, though. Go put it somewhere <laughs> far away. Oh, Paul's already got me going. Oh, no. <laughs> He's already gotten his claws in ya. I see Dean Blumberg. Dean, welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? Hello, everybody. Morning from my side. Can you hear me? I can hear you quite well. Dean, you are from a country I don't think we've spoken to yet. Is that right? I don't think so. Not from what I've heard on the podcast. I'm from Johannesburg in South Africa. Wow, South Africa. Excellent. It must be pretty late there for you. Very early. Early, Actually, early, yes. <laughs> very early. Dan Tree, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm loving the central camera t-shirt you got on there. Oh, yeah. We have had to help him out. But it is not as cool as my Camerosity podcast t-shirt. If it came in black. Um... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Alex Dietrich. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I, too, have fallen uh, uh, victim to Paul's... Uh ebay store wow <laughs> paul is like the gift that keeps on giving is this not paul's support group or something <sighs> you guys john gilchrist how you doing there buddy hey not too bad so we ended the last episode i had teased a story that we were kind of cooking up that we thought would be a very fascinating episode 26 and that did not quite pan out as well as we had thought, uh, but I still think it's worth sharing a little bit of the details of it because uh, I think it's it's somewhat entertaining and could venture us down an interesting topic. Um, I'll set this one up for Paul, but I'll let him finish it. But a mutual friend of the show that Paul, myself, and Anthony know, some of you may know him too, I'm not going to say his name, just out of privacy, had contacted us about attending the um, Columbus, Ohio OCCS camera auction. It was Friday, May 6th. 
So he wanted us to go to the show and he was going to be like, what would they call it? Like a shill bidder where he gives us like permission to buy on his behalf. He had a wish list. Proxy bidder. That's it. Not shill bidder. We were going to be his proxy. This is a collector with very, very deep wallets. You know, he... Kind of had a huge list, what like 20, maybe 30 cameras. We put him in touch with Paul only because it would have been a 10-hour round trip for me. And Paul was only about an hour away. Dan Hausman has been on the show before, too. He kind of is in charge of the Ohio Camera Collector Society. So he's aware of these auctions. They, they have them usually twice a year, I think. And the, they generally have quite a few pretty nice things there. So he had his list. Paul talked to him before the show uh, or before the auction, and they had a plan there. But how did it how did it turn out, Paul? How many of the 30 or so cameras did uh, you end up buying for him? None. And why was that? Well, you know, he and I had talked before, and, and we I had a list. I, I got there an hour early. I was going to, you know, because these all these things are sold as is. You know, there is no there is no guarantee. So you really got to look at them and fondle them to see if it's in working condition or what, what, whether you want to buy it. So there are like 500 items for sale. They are not put in any order. So if you're looking for item number A116, it might be next to E11. So you got 30 items and they're scattered all over a good sized room trying to find the stuff. It was just, it was just not good. So I, I did manage to find the majority of the things he wanted to look at, wanted me to look at. And he had given me some guidance as to what a fair price would be. Well, when I read, when I got there and registered to bid, I was the fourth person. By the time the bidding started, there were like 25 people, including one dealer from Michigan who is a great guy, but not anybody you want to go against at an auction. So the things were just crazy. I mean, there were cameras that, that, realistically should have been $200 that sold for $800. And I bid on some of them, but I, you know, it was just no way that I, I've never seen anything like it. And neither had the other people at the auction. It was just like a feeding frenzy of collectible stuff. There were a lot of stereo cameras from, from the 30s and uh, 20s and 30s, a lot of lots. I wound up buying a Nikon S with a 1.4 lens and of course paid too much for it and it didn't work. So that was that. So the auction was a bust for me and for the, the guy I was hoping to bid for. Now, that was Friday. Saturday was supposed to be the camera show. Now, we're, here we are in, in Columbus, Ohio, which is a pretty good-sized town. There was a good, great attendance for the auction. So I, I'm, all, I'm all optimistic about it. I've got two tables full of stuff that's just wonderful stuff. The show is supposed to run from 9.30 to 2.30. I think there were at most seven civilians showed up for the show. I sold two lenses and a camera, and, and that was it. You know, the, the show was supposed to last till 2.30. At 1 o'clock, everyone was packed up and leaving because it was, it was such a miserable experience. I, my tables were right next to a, another guy who I know quite well who's a, another dealer. And uh, I happened to notice that behind his, uh, his uh, table were a couple of cameras he'd been bringing to Cincinnati for a few years and hadn't sold them. So I said, do you want to, do you want to sell these? And he said, yeah, I'll sell them. So I bought a uh, Contaflex TLR, which is a pretty cool 18-pound, 35-millimeter camera. So that's a 35-millimeter TLR. Yeah, and an exact uh, 66 vertical, which is oh, wow. a post-war. 
they, they made actually two of the two Exacta 66s, the horizontal that was pre-war and the vertical, which was post-war. Oddly enough, this is a 120 camera. It weighs probably a third less than the Contaflex TLR 35 millimeter camera does. Now, a lot of you have been to camera shows and a lot of you may go to camera shows. I'm going to give you some secret advice. If you're buying or selling in any kind of volume, if you're looking for anything in particular or you have some stuff you want to sell, spend the $75 to buy a table because 90% of the business is done at a camera show is done in the two hours before the show opens to the public. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's dealers selling to other dealers. That's where all the deals are. Wow. And if you have something to sell, if you walk into a show with that in a bag and want to sell it to a dealer, you're going to get about 20% less than you'll get if you sell it as a dealer to another dealer, because they know they can't mess with you. How about that, Robert? What do you think? How'd you do at the, how'd you do at the Chicago show? Yeah, we had a show here yesterday, Sam, a, a vinegar show. It was a nice, you know, nice day to meet a bunch of people I know well and talk about, but otherwise it was a waste of time. We might've had 20 dealers, maybe 25 dealers at the most, or a lot of empty tables. And I think we had less than 50 or 60 people through the door. Mm -hmm. So uh, I didn't sell anything all day. I probably had uh, stuff that was too expensive for the crowd that was coming in, but even the dealers weren't that interested. They're, they're, getting, they're changing too. Dealers aren't quite as uh, loose with their money as they once were. Everybody's kind of worried. I had Nikon rangefinders on the table, black ones. I had motor drives. I had sub-miniatures, all different colors. I had all kinds of stuff and no takers on anything. Well, I saw your there, somebody who was at that show took a picture of your table. Yeah, that was Jim Emerson did that, yeah. And I saw you had commented and said, that's my stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know he took the picture. All of a sudden, it shows up on Facebook. I said, whoa. We see on eBay things sometimes, you know, you joke about eBay prices. A lot of times things go for more. Paul, you said the auction went, went crazy. But then when it's just the general population shows, you're just not seeing a lot of people come in. So that tells me that there is just money circulating within the same group of collectors and dealers. Like it, it's that same inventory is just cycling through the same people. Is that what you kind of think is happening? That's very possible. I mean, it, it is right now. eBay for me is very, very strong. I mean, I'm, I'm shipping six to 10 boxes a day. And, you know, it'll go through maybe three days where it's very slow. And then all of a sudden it's very busy again. You know, it, but I'm, I'm always surprised that the camera shows, a lot of dealers come to the camera shows to buy rather than sell. Yeah. They don't even bring merchandise with them. They just have a table or a table and a sign that says, I buy cameras, <laughs> you know, so That's weird. I, where they sell them, <laughs> I don't know. Well, the Japanese but, used to do that years ago in our Chicago yeah. show. The Japanese yep. would do that. They would buy a table, but not have anything on the table but signs, okay? And that's just to attract your attention. They always wanted the tables by the door. They would pay extra to get the tables by the door. So, John, you had, you had nodded earlier, too. Has that been your experience at the shows you've gone to? Yeah, I've, I've been to the Chicago one a few times, the Abe shows. And most all the sales that I did were to uh, Igor and Mike before yeah. the show. And at one of the shows that we've done, probably the last one I went to as a seller, I think we had 13 people come through the door. And it's to, to me, that's, that was just, that's, it's not worth it to, to be there for that. Um, they were a lot of fun. I mean, it was great meeting people and oh, just yeah. mingling and stuff. So they were great yeah. as a, as a social event. I don't think they're advertised nearly as well as they need to be. I mean, to only be able to attract 13 people in Chicago 
It's like, that's, yeah. there's something not happening right there. Well, there used to be a guy named Bill Bond who did the shows and Bill would send out, he had photorama or something. He would send out postcards and uh, do all kinds of promotion and, you know, free publicity, but he would do it. And that attracted people. I mean, people would come to the shows. Well, things have changed so much. I was the, um, I was a treasurer for the Chicago society for like 25 years. Nobody else would do it. So I used to run the shows more or less. I saw everything that came, all the checks that came in, all the tables or whatever. We topped out on a Sunday show, 220 tables and 1,034 people through the door. By the time we did the last show, which was about five years ago, we finally had to throw in the towel. We had 35 tables and 75 people through the door. Where they all went, nobody knows. I hope they didn't all die. But the thing is, where did, where did 1,000 people go? And where did 200 dealers go? I don't have an answer. Well, Igor and Tim Carey both were at the Columbus show. They had both been to the Boston show the day or the, the week before. And the Boston show was fantastic. Was it? I mean, it was like your your old Chicago shows. There were 200 dealers. And, really? And because people came from all over New England for that show. Could the change be that it's it's different location where the people collecting are now? So, I mean, you mentioned it's far for a lot of people to travel could it be that the actual locations where people are collecting is different now? And that's why you suddenly get things like Boston popping up to being more popular? Well, the thing is, Chicago show used to be about the third biggest in the country. I think the only thing that would ever beat us out was one of them they had in California and one they had in, in, uh, in I think it might have been the Boston show. Those are the only two that were bigger than ours. So I don't know what's left. at the other. I was at the... Uh, California show about five or five, six years ago. It was nice. It was big, but I don't know if it's still that way. It used to be in, uh, I can't remember now what they used to have, but they changed the location to, of it. But it, uh, it was much bigger than what we used to have here in Chicago towards the end. We've got a bunch of other people on the show here too. Um, are there any of you that have gone to shows elsewhere in the country or the world and seen mm. or heard of different experiences? I can speak to South Africa. Hi, how are you doing? South Africa is obviously isolated, so we don't get eBay. But I was actually at a show last week or week before. So exactly what you're saying. So most of the guys, the collectors have migrated online. And the shows are actually very, very small. And what you're finding is the new guys that are coming up, sort of youngsters. So you'll find you'll go to a show and there's a ton of guys pulling in to get point and shoots, the sort of low-hanging fruit. But your sort of collectorship, that's the group at the top, um, they're cycling amongst the Facebook groups because there's no eBay here, but we've got a vintage camera collectors group. And you find that most of us are cycling to your point, just constantly cycling the gear. And if you want something new, you've got to hope that somewhere in a nook or a cranny, someone's got something sitting in a, in a cupboard, but very little has been anything that's coming to South Africa has been here and is here. Every now and again, someone buys something overseas, like America or Japan, brings it in, gets tired of it, and it goes into circulation. But those camera shows are just totally shrunk because they're trying to appeal to new, new young guys, mostly in this country wanting point-and-shoots, your K1000s, your introductory cameras. But the collector group, that's now almost exclusively online. Yeah. And the dealers who I'm plugged into are doing the same thing. They find they're getting better prices, not having to negotiate, but talking to their usual customers, just cycling that 
high-end gear, collector gear around. So you said that there isn't a lot of shipment in there. Is that a COVID restriction or is there something else preventing that? It's just years. You know, South Africa is an isolated country in many ways. It's a right at the bottom tip of Africa. Most of the gear that was brought in for many, many years, especially film gear, has, is here. It's not coming in again. Very few people are bringing in shipments of film gear. Plus, we can't get eBay. You can, you can try, but with our postal service, I wouldn't do it. I think it took me 18 months to get um, film from FPP. So I'm not going to risk a decent camera. So what I would do is I've got folks living, my, my mom lives in America. I'd ship it somewhere in the States. If she comes out on a visit, she brings me a care package. Every now and again, you can DHL something through from Europe. Um, every now and again, something from Japan. But it's, it's at risk in this country. So your gear yeah. is almost here. It's already established what's in the country. You had mentioned uh, young people. So um, Aiden, you are you said you just started collecting. For you, not that I expect you to be an advocate for everybody who's new, but like what would be a way that you would go about adding to your collection? You said you've already bought from Paul, so obviously you know his no, eBay no, store. But... No, Mike, Aiden is the king of estate sales. <laughs> Oh, estate sales. Okay, okay. He is the uncrowned king of estate okay. sales. He'll drive four hours, get up at 6 a.m. and drive, no, get up at 3 a.m. to be at an estate sale, drive four hours and be there to get his number at seven. I gotcha. So tell us about that. Aiden. Yeah, I mean, anything for the deal. Yeah. I, I just like to search online and, you know, like you said, nooks, nooks and crannies, I look all over the place, but um, I think I don't really go for like point and shoot and stuff like that. I've gone several hours for Hasselblads and Leicas, but nothing too extreme or crazy. Definitely not across the country yet. I'm waiting for that deal to come up. But I think the the best deal I've gotten so far is probably uh, Hasselblad and a couple lenses for for a steal. But as a as a young collector, I don't I don't go for the Contacts G ones or the um, Yashica T fours. That's just not my style. I like the more um, manual, old school kind of kind of feel. Well, what did you just buy? Which one? <laughs> We're talking about gas now. What what was what did you buy yesterday? So on Saturday I bought a Omega View four by five camera. Yesterday I bought a Leica M6 Titanium, and then what I, I bought a Sumicron from Paul. Not to mention a Voigtlander Nocton 35. So I've got quite the mail coming in. He's also got a. You, you still got that Rolly, the dead Rolly. Yeah, yeah, got the Rolly. What was that? A 35 SE. The 35S. An S, 35S. 35S. But, you know, it doesn't work right now. Hopefully I'll crack it open and try to repair it someday. So you, you go to state sales. Um, for me personally, I've gone to a couple shows. In fact, the one and only meaningful purchase I've ever bought at a show is from you, Paul. You sold me uh, a Nikkor 35, it's F25, the F25. But I found... And I know this isn't everybody, you know, you always been really nice to me. Dan's really nice. You know, Robert is great, but you know, out of my price range, but some of the other dealers are, they're not the most friendly people, you know, um, I, mean, I don't want to say names, but some of them are a little cranky and, and you know, I don't know if that like turns people off or something, you know, it, it is sort of a boys club. And I think that maybe something needs to be done to sort of shake that up, to bring people in. Cause if you're not a member of the vintage camera collectors group or a few other Chicago area groups and Facebook, you wouldn't know these shows are happening. So, you know, for you guys who are going Robert to some of these shows, I mean, I would have a talk with the guys putting them on and say, we got to do something different. Cause you know, appeal well, we did, to we, younger yeah. people. 
Mike, if I if I can if I can talk to that for a second, I feel I'm a bit like like Dean and that I, I live in Florida, which is like the South Africa of, of the United States. You know, we're we're big and we're isolated and it's a long haul from one side of the state to the other. And as somebody who's relatively plugged into the camera scene, I have no sense if there's a camera show going on in Florida. Uh, you know, because I think that what's happened is with Facebook, the scene is really atomized. It's become so localized that you've got all of these. You know, even though I'm on some of the larger Facebook discussion groups, um, the local shows aren't being advertised there. Like I never saw a single posting about this Ohio show and I'd never heard about the Chicago show. And I'm somebody who travels to Chicago several times a year. I mean, I, I could have planned a trip around that show if I'd known it was happening. But the truth is that it's so localized right now. And these Facebook groups have fragmented so much that if you aren't part of that small local subset of that one group, you're never going to find out about it. There's no more Shutterbug magazine. There's no more you know, national periodical that a show could be promoted on. And there's also, also, there's no central repository of shows that are happening. I mean, it's not like you can go to the FPP website and see a list of like, these are the shows that are happening in the United States in the next six months. Uh, there's just, there, there really is no way to find out. And if you're one degree outside of that, that, that small collector's community, you just, you're, you're not going to know about it. Well, to anybody who might be listening, we have a camera collector friendly podcast here. who would be happy to share uh, show announcements. We have websites, we have Facebook groups. Um, I, I feel like we're kind of all saying the same thing that these shows have become a small circle of the same people talking to each other. And, and it's never going to survive that way. So, you know, circling kind of back to the to the auction real quick where nothing got sold or I'm sorry, nothing got bought by by uh, Paul for our, our mutual friend. There is obviously money out there. Uh, Paul, you're doing really, really well on eBay. So people are buying. But um, I would love to, to have there be more shows and let there be more awareness and get more people into the hobby, you know, so that. For young people who are getting into this, they, they don't think that the Ashika T4s and the Contact G2s aren't the only option. Because if I was just getting into a hobby and I saw the prices of a Contact G2 and thought that's what it costs to get into film, I'm not going to do it. Uh, there are certainly many, many, many other cameras that are worthwhile of getting into that are still really, really cheap. Mind you, it's not just eBay that's online too. Uh, I recently just... You know, I started buying at eBay, then moved onto some on online auctions. They were actual physical auctions, generally run by the vintage, um, antique type places. I saw the prices weren't as high there. Um, I attended one in the UK and got a bit of a deal. I attended one in New Zealand, which was interesting, um, which was held online. Uh, interesting enough, was held during the nighttime in the US and very early in the morning in the UK and uh, Europe. So. Yeah, the competition probably sort of dwindled there a little bit and, and got some pretty good bargains there. What I saw was a lot of equipment, a lot of cameras being sold at quite reasonable prices. I'm just wondering if the shift, has it shifted to other areas and then people either buying it through eBay or attending these online auctions rather than going to to the actual shows and you know negotiating with dealers? Well, I have a couple of camera uh, shops in my city, in Salt Lake City, Utah. And they sell uh, cameras for other other people and take like a 25% you know, commission um, off of what they sell. So I've actually got a box full of stuff I'll be dropping off to to one of them that I'm hoping to have, have them help me move like the anti-gas because I'm realizing there's just stuff that I need to get rid of. But 
I don't know it seems like a lot of camera stores might be, you know, jumping on that as well where you can buy stuff in person. Anti-gas. I like that word. Yeah. I've entered into a period of anti-gas myself. I bought from Paul a beautiful F2AS. He it was just the body, this is my lens, but I had an F2 already and I really really wanted one of the ASs. The difference really is just the prism. The actual body is exactly is exactly the same, but the AS accepts the um AI indexed lenses, which means you don't have to use the bunny ears for, for non-Nikon people. And it also displays the exposure using LEDs in the viewfinder. But I really, really like this. And I just realized I was looking at my Nikon box. I was looking at my, my German camera box and my Japanese rangefinder box, my Soviet camera box and my Kodak box. And, and I was just like, I have too many damn boxes. I don't know where to put stuff anymore. I have different cameras from different systems. And like the F3HP never jived with me and i realized it's a good time to get rid of it and then i have a ae1 yeah. program that i just bought that one for cheap at an antique store and realized i could just flip it you know for quite a bit right now since they're popular but i think every time i'd go to like a vent, uh, thrift shop and find a point and shoot it would i'd rescue it and take it home to just sit there and i just right now they can you can sell them for a little, you know, more than what I paid for each of them. Time to clean house a little bit. Clean a house. And that's good too, because it gets new inventory out there for new people to discover. Of course, everyone's buying Digicams now. No, yeah. they're not, Theo. Stop it. Stop it, Theo. <laughs> I'm impervious to gas. I get no I get no gas because I see so much stuff that nothing nothing interests me until this week. <laughs> yeah, tell them, tell them what you bought there. Robert, well, you'll like this. S3-2000. Black Ooh. with the uh, with the case and the hood and everything and an SP. You're supposed to leave that in a box. This is the SP. I shot with this today. I shot a roll of Triax through it, and uh, I put my 3535 on it because I was shooting in town. But uh, this is my first first roll I ever shot through a Nikon rangefinder, and I, ever? I really I really enjoyed it. It was a good experience, and and this thing I sold. You know, over the years I've probably sold ten of these. Uh, six of them in silver and four of them in black because you don't see as many black ones. But uh, this is just a joy. I mean, it's just a terrific camera. It's got all the smoothness of an F2. Since we have Robert here, is is it the, the rumor or is it the story I've heard with the black ones is they had some of them for sale and they weren't selling fast enough. So they, they took unsold inventory, sent them back to to Japan and had them painted black. Is that my? I... I haven't heard that. I don't think I don't know if that's true or not. Um, they made when they first came out with the S3. We were all disappointed because it was chrome. Okay, we we said, why didn't you come out with a black one? Why come out with a chrome one? The chrome one never really moved very well. Then they eventually came out with the black one, and then that took off. But they only made two thousand of the black. They made something like six thousand of the chrome ones. But I have not been able to verify whether they actually converted them. Uh, chrome ones to black. I don't think they ever sold out of either one of them, really. I mean, they may have closed them out, but they don't re didn't really make any money on the whole deal. It was a lost leader, but they should have come out with the black one in the first place instead of the chrome one. They then when they came been. out with the SP, they did come out with just a black one. Well, they came out with the, the chrome one in, in 2000. Yes. They've been, on the, been in the works for a long time, and they came out with it. They had a lot of production problems. Oh, yeah. They they said they were going to make they they the way they forwarded is that they made eight thousand yeah they didn't say they sold eight thousand no no they said they made eight thousand so then in two thousand two two years later yeah. they come out with the black version that's what led me to believe the story sounded true that you know they had two thousand of them in the warehouse and they weren't able to sell them so they just painted them black and 
and shipped no, around no. the world. The thing is, as far as production goes, they had a lot of problems. First of all, I heard somewhere that they ordered parts. They didn't make all the parts on that camera. Some of it was farmed out. They ordered parts for 10,000, supposedly, like 10,000 rewind levers, 10,000 wine levers, et cetera, et cetera. Their main problem was that nobody working at Nikon at that point in time knew how to put them together. They had no one left in the factory that had any knowledge of how you manually assemble a camera. They actually had to go out and look for retired Nikon workers in their 70s and 80s, brought them in and had them train a group of young people on how to make these cameras. They trained like 20 people. They had a room in the Mita, in the Mita factory, which is where they were made. There was only 20 people in there sitting at benches like the old time days actually putting these things together who had been trained by these 70 and 80 year old former employees because nobody there knew how to do it. So that really slowed down production. That's also raised the price quite high. Whether they ever, you know, they said 10,000 parts for 10,000, they were probably dreaming. They maybe just ordered 10,000 automatically because that maybe economically that made sense, but they never sold anywhere near that. Never sold anywhere near that. So, Paul, you know, we know no one on this show would think this, but there are people who see Nikon rangefinders merely as a contacts clone. Uh, having shot one of the Nikon rangefinders now, like what was your like reaction to it? Is it does it feel like a completely different camera? The only thing that is even even any similarity at all to me is the is the focus. Yeah, the focus wheel, which I never use anyway. Right. I mean, that's the only common thing that, besides the lens mount, that's the only thing they have in common. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, it's 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 totally different camera. And I agree. It's it's a totally different shutter, a different feel, a different viewfinder. It's just no comparison. What do you is that? Does that sound right, Robert? Well, yeah. You know, first of all, I'm like you. I don't use the wheel that often because a lot of times the wheel. Depending on your mount on the camera, the wheel sometimes has too much resistance, really. Yeah. A new camera doesn't, but an older camera, I use the, the regular focusing. But actually, yeah, you say that the mount, which was their biggest problem when they started to come out with the Nikon 1, they couldn't perfect that mount. They had all kinds of problems. The mount and the um, uh, removable back, which they improved over contacts by attaching the take-up spool so it wouldn't fall on the floor and roll underneath your dresser when you were trying to reload a roll of film. Uh, little things like that. But no, there's the shape of the camera was similar in the beginning but it, it moved away from that the range finder window was in a different location you didn't have your finger in front of it all day like you do on the contacts it they moved away very quickly they had to copy something in the beginning to get started because japan didn't have the abilities to do anything else at that point and luckily they took the best of both they took the best of the contacts they took the best of the leica it's got a leica rangefinder got a leica shutter very simple mechanism compared to contacts they can never have made the contact shutter no way not at that point in time so they chose well. They chose well. And um, by the time the S2 came along, there was no similarity anymore, contacts at all. And they'd moved into their own. They weren't copiers anymore. At that point in time, they were innovators. They just kept going from there. Never stopped. You know, and they eventually put the Germans out of business. Them and Canon put the Germans out of business, which is really kind of ironic if you think about it. So, Robert, the last time I, I was at your house, I brought I brought this camera yep. with you. Yep. You remember yep. this one, this contacts I one? I do. And and I showed you the shutter, and you could see pieces of string sticking out from the yeah. sides of it because these these old contact shutters almost never work. Well, yes, I uh, Radu uh, Lasaro in somewhere in Florida. So see, Anthony, you're you're not in a complete uh, bubble down there, but uh, this thing works perfectly now. 
Really? Um, okay. So, you know, you guys were talking about the fine wheel. This has the fine wheel, too. It is absolutely so easy to spin. Yeah, once everything is lubricated, yeah. Once it's yeah. lubricated, you know, so I agree. Like, on my, my Nikon range finders, um, in fact, aside from this camera, the one camera in my entire collection where the wheel actually is fairly easy to use is on one of my Kievs. I don't know why I got lucky on that one. Maybe it's just broken. There's an excess of bacon in there. Um, but when you get one of these things properly lubed, they are, they are quite a gem, but th those, uh, millennium edition S3s, the SPs, you have, a, it's the original SP. Those are beautiful cameras. Paul, who did you buy those from? Anu. Anu. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anu Jindal in, in New York. He, you know, I've been buying things on Facebook lately, Facebook marketplace. You got to be very careful because there are so many scammers out there. If you buy yeah. or sell. It's unbelievable. Well, Aiden's been through this. He's Aiden has been trying to sell an Alpa and a Macro Switar for months, and uh, he's had. I, I've learned a lot from the scammers who've been trying to get him. But uh, yeah. Anu uh, had him had both those cameras listed on Facebook Marketplace, and I beat out uh, a couple of a couple of guys that I know in California who wanted them just because there was a three hour time difference between him and uh, them and uh, and Anu in New York. Yeah, Anu uh, loaned me a Pentax LX, which I'm going to have a review up for that tomorrow. So uh, that's another of Anu's cameras. He's a super cool guy. Love to have him on the show. Anu, if you listen, you need to join now. Click the link. I'm looking forward to that review. You're a big Pentax fan, are you, Mark? Well, I Mark, am now. Mark popped in. Yes, yeah, yeah, Mark. That's Mark Beetle. Yeah, sorry, Mark. Yeah, I was having a hard time hearing you there. Uh, you, it's, a grave, it's a graveyard shift by you, right? It is, yeah. All right, so Mark, Mark and Dean are both in uh, pretty far away times in, in the middle of the morning. But I want to circle back to Theo. You had mentioned earlier that you had bought some cameras at an auction from New Zealand. Was there anything um, interesting in that lot that you got or that you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I will. Um, for the people in the chat, I attached the file uh, in, in the call. I attached the file a bit earlier so you can bring it up and have a look while, while I'm talking. But uh, I'll actually step back a couple of bits and, and say I started the year saying I'm not going to buy much and I'm going to sort of go anti-gas and you know obviously I got cured from that and we'll, we'll have to cure <laughs> we'll have to cure Mike at some point but um I bought myself a, a Braun Super Pack set 35 and thought okay it's a cheap little camera try it out we spoke about the Brawns a bit earlier you know the pre previous show um which is a nice little camera uh, works it's got in the really weird advanced winder at the bottom um it's it's like a rapid winder but it sort of unfolds itself out the front it's really strange this one it looks like the rico the rico 500 looks is very similar where it kind of folds down and then it yeah. you, it's like a trigger like on a gun but you kind of move it with your left index finger right am i describing that right i think this one was designed a bit different to the ones that you get on the cap cannons for instance uh right. rangefinders because the cannons were designed so that you you screw on that handle down the bottom, which makes them a bit more stable. This was never designed that way. It was more more of a sort of a trigger, as you said. So that was kind of started off. And then I thought, oh, okay, well, I've started buying now. I'll, I'll buy another camera off eBay and went for them. And something I've always wanted for a while is the Mamiya U autofocus. Now, these are great early 80s cameras, autofocus, 2.8, 35-millimeter lens, I think you're a big fan of the um, non-autofocus ones, Paul, the, of the Mamiya U's. They're more your your taste. Yeah, I like the the uh, the one that was more rounded. The one you have is a squared off version, and the the Mamiya U 
uh, with the rounded front where, where the lens is. We sold mostly those in the US. So one you have, I think, was a second version. And um, the one that I had was the first version. Interesting enough, this one was sold as a black version. And um, when people see definitely the show notes and, and so on, that's definitely not black. Does it's it as work? as can be. Does it work though? It works perfectly. My experience with, there was a stretch from like maybe 82 to 85 where like every Japanese maker were making compact, small, prime lens, like usually 2.8. The Mamiya U, Canon had a model called the MC. Um, Minolta had one called the AFC, I think it was called. There's a few others and I have had terrible, terrible luck with that category of cameras and they never work i've had three different canon mcs they're beautiful cameras and i am certain you know canon lenses from the era was pretty good but I, i've never been able to shoot one so it's really interesting that you have this really neat little white point and shoot with a looks like a 2.8 secor lens um yeah. relatively wide angle so i'm sure that's a lot of fun to shoot have you have you had a chance to shoot it yet i've tried it without film at the moment i'm still working through some other cameras right now okay but it's right. uh yeah. it works it, it reacts to the light the right way i can hear the different shutter speeds and it's even got the the actual shutter release button which a lot of these these are missing it's actually quite good so then i jumped off the auctions and went to the uk first on the uk auction and walked away with a minox uh, well i a pack of Minox type cameras, which includes a Minox LX, a Minox C, and a Yashica Aturon, uh, with a flash display case, few film cartridges. Um, there's even a neutral density filter that fits on the um, Aturon. That, interesting enough, arrived this morning uh, here. So the postman sort of started uh, hauling the, the packages across. It's actually sitting right here next to me. Beautiful little cameras. I think the LX, I've fallen in love with the little Minox LX. It's it's, it's a beautiful little camera. The Eteron, Anthony's talked about that before. It has an interesting shutter sound. I think Anthony described it as uh, the sound that those, uh, the pistols, the, the sort of <laughs> sound that... Uh, yeah. It, it might have been, it might have been. I might be remembering yeah. wrong. But I knew it was a strange sound, so I didn't worry about too much about okay. the auctioneers um, mentioning that. It sounded like a toy, uh, toy like ray gun from a 1950s science fiction film. Ah, even yeah. better. All right, so I see a Canon Demi, but it's not just any old Canon Demi. What's special about this one? This one's the Rapid, which I believe uh, loads a lot faster. And, and that's about all I know about it. It just looks really cool. Uh, I've been wanting a Demi for a while to the point where I actually bought one once and was so such in a hurry to buy it that I actually bought it with half the front missing off. So I thought I really wanted to get a working one. Um, and now this was from New Zealand. So at this point, I'd moved on to the New Zealand auctions. And this has got the 30 millimeter 1.7 lens. So I'm really Fast keen lens. to try this out. So does it have both cassettes in the back? Do you have two of them when you open it up? Um, I, I, I haven't actually received it yet. So Oh, you haven't? Um, okay, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm no. sorry. The New Zealand order is still on the way. Wayne's holding something up there. What is that? That's a rapid cassette. Ah, yeah, that's a rapid cassette. That's the second version because I can see the little yeah. tab on the side. So uh, that is basically the exact same thing as an Agfa Carat, K-A-R-A-T cassette. The only difference between the rapid cassettes and the carats is the rapids have that little tab. Yeah, there you go. He's yeah. got a carrot there too. So um, if you have a rapid camera but you have Which an old carrot. Yeah, then you, the, the cassettes are interchangeable, even though they look a little bit different. Well, he's got one too. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I was quite comfortable getting it, because I do actually have the cassettes already. So 
even if it doesn't have them, I'm, I'm fine. What's interesting is you, it's not what you bought, but the Canon dial, which was that weird camera that you could hold single-handed that's got the big wind-up thing on the bottom, they made a rapid version of the dial too, but it looks kind of like your camera, the Demi as well so oh, but it's okay. got a, it's got a motor drive though so there was a very short-lived period of time where even the japanese kind of jumped back on the rapid train uh i know uh mamiya had made one i'm fairly certain kanaka did two maybe minolta i don't 100 percent remember but this is really really neat because just the canon demis are, are fine cameras they're just a half frame usually 35 millimeter i don't think they're that really interesting but this one you got here with the fast f17 lens but also using the rapid cassettes i think is super cool and i'm really eager yeah. to hear your thoughts on it if you ever get a chance to shoot it i have the minolta here which one is that the 24 rapid the 24 rapid okay that's cool it's, it so that's square square yes square pictures really fun very cool oh i looked at those for a while they look really cool, um, but they, they're quite hard to get hold of. They're very hard to find. I guess it got lucky again. Um, we just got in at the store probably Friday. We got a rapid camera, and I, I want to say it was an Ilford camera, but it might have been an Agfa. But it's a little point-and-shoot uh, rapid, and it's got one of the rapid cassettes in it. It's odd because I don't see those very often, and having got one in Friday and yeah, then you definitely, you definitely need two cassettes to be able to shoot them. Cause it's cassette to cassette. Yeah. Yeah. You can shoot rapids with one cassette, but you need to, yeah, you need to load and unload in the dark. Of course. Yeah. You'd have to it probably take some tape. I would put tape around the, the door seams too, just to be extra careful, but you're right. I, it is possible, but I, I would definitely do all you can to try and find two works a lot yeah. better so then i moved on and i got and i don't know if i'm pronouncing this correctly but the fanwork fanwork technic mech 16 sb now i've never seen this camera before it's a 1960s viewfinder 16 millimeter camera shoots 10 by 14 millimeter frames it's got a rodenstock heligon 22 millimeter lens doing a bit of research on it Anthony and I had a bit of a debate on this one. I'm not sure we actually resolved it either, but there's a lot of literature that says it's the first camera to offer through the lens metering. But, you know, there's a lot of debate on whether that's this or the top cons. So... Robert, do you know anything about the fine work technique Mech 16? The Mech 16, I have I have one Mech 16, yeah. Do you know anything about it being the first camera with through the lens metering or anything no, special? No, know. okay. But it has a meter though? Yes. It's got to be a, a, a cadmium sulfide meter somewhere. Yes, in those days, yeah, it would have been. Because I don't think you could really It do just looks really cool. Selenium. Yeah, it's very neat looking. I'm really fo looking forward to, um, okay. to trying that out. Then, yeah, I was starting to ramp up in this New Zealand So you uh, just kept spending more money, right? You're just like, I'm yes, going all for it. I did. All right. Because the prices were so good. And I got um, a Futura 35M RF, which is an SLR with interchangeable lenses. Okay. Uh, from the mid fifties, they just look cool. I, I know they're not the, the greatest SLR, but they they're uh, they just look cool. Well, it's a rangefinder. It's a rangefinder. It's, range... it's not an SLR. Oh, I'm sorry. I've got that yeah. wrong. Yeah. Um, but it's um, as I said, they look cool. But anything that's got the name Futura, you just got to have one of those. Yeah. That's, that's, uh... Yeah, I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on it. I've only had one Futura, and it, it definitely left me kind of wanting. Uh, I was not impressed with the build quality of it. But uh, it's only one model I've handled, though. So uh, looking at the picture of yours, it looks like it's in nice shape. So cool. 
Um, and then I've got, uh, and I know you've you've actually written about this one, Mike, um, the Golding the 127, which is a folding 19, early 1930s folding 127 mm -hmm. camera uh, with a 50 millimeter lens. Just looks really cool. I think it'd be a yeah. lot of fun to shoot that. Yeah, these are really, really nice 127 folding cameras. I mean, think of like the Kodak Vest Pocket, but way nicer. Very, very cool. And it's got um, F29. It says a Zekanar, but I, I have a feeling that's like a Steinheil or something along those lines. Who knows? And then, um, interesting enough, there was a pair of Lidoff Laudomats, yes. uh, which are made in Welzer being sold as a pair uh, for less than what you'd actually find one online. Comparing the Laudomat to the Futura, 100%, the Laudomats, those are really, really nice cameras. I think, you, I kind of wish you had these already because I'm curious to see how they are functionally, but um, very, very nice. Shouldn't be too long. The Tasman's yeah. not that big, so it should be <laughs> it should be flying across right yeah. now. Uh, then I grabbed a Minolta 16 MGS, so uh, early 70s 16mm camera, all black. Looks all black. absolutely stunning. Wow. I don't think I've ever seen a black one before. Um, the 23mm lens apparently is quite, the Rokor lens is apparently quite, quite a nice lens on that. Yeah. Another black camera, an Olympus Pen FT. This was amazing. I, I just couldn't believe I had very little competition on this one. 1966 to 72 half frame SLR. It's got the Zuko Auto S 38 millimeter 1.8 and the Zuko 100 millimeter 3.5. So it's a nice little set there. All black looks absolutely stunning. Uh, I can't, I've always wanted one of these. Uh, one of the, the pens. This next one, Anthony and I, we really pulled your arm on this one, I think, right? Yeah, this, this one was interesting because they had another buyer that didn't actually pay. So they came back to me and said, oh, would you like this as well? You got the second your... chance offer. Okay. Yeah, the second chance offer. It's a Rolly 35. Um, it's one of the original ones with a, uh, and it's got the Tesla lens. So 3.5. Um Again, it's another one I've always wanted, and uh, it just sort of fell in my lap. And yeah, this was Anthony and Mike um, sort of um, telling me it was twisting you know, your arm, and then Paul coming yeah. in and saying it's a good deal. So how many dents? How many dents are in it, uh, Theo? There's one. I can see one. I can see viewfinder. one. Yeah, oh, it's a one. That's good. I can't see the back of the camera, but it's at least a one. Okay. For anybody who's listening to all the episodes, Paul's rating system on Raleigh Thirty Fives is zero to eight. You could, and that's how many dented corners they have. We've, we've concluded that the way that people use these cameras, they were so small, they were almost always dangling from a strap and they're just swinging around, bumping into stuff and they accumulate dents. So it's actually that's actually a really nice feature, Theo, to buy one that's pre-dented so you don't have to do the first used. dent. Right. Well, otherwise, if you get a zero, then that just means you're going to be the one that dents. This camera has survived for 50 years until you're the person that gets it and dents it. And the reason I say that so emphatically is because that's what I did. And I was pissed. <laughs> I had a zero and I turned it into a one. But whatever. What can you do? All right. Sorry. They also then offered me another one that didn't get sold, which was a Rolly A110. So I were on the Rollies, A110, um, which is obviously a 110 camera from the late 70s. Um, but it comes in, it came in the original box and got its all its literature and so on. So I'm quite, yeah, that was like a $25 offer. I thought New Zealand dollars too. So I thought, oh, yes, please. So, and that was Anthony that convinced me on that one too. So, and then things started getting interesting, even more interesting. Got a Voigtlander Inos 2. 
Now, people don't know these very much, but they're a 116 camera from the early 30s. Shoots 6.6 by 11 centimetre frames. Um, it does have a mask that does reduce it to five, five and a half to six and a half centimetres. And this one is actually not very common because it's got the 11.8 centimetre lens. So I was just telling the guys a bit earlier, um, I'll probably get some adapters and put 120 through it and it then becomes basically a six by 11 centimetre panoramic camera for me. So I'm quite, quite keen to try this out. And then by accident, I ended up with two Voigtlander Superbs. So, <laughs> and, and he's shaking his head because he's been chasing a Superb for yeah. a long, long time. So Ch- Chess uh, Ibarra just got one and Anthony was losing his mind and now you have two. So, yes. so um, all, Anthony, these cameras are all migrating to the Southern Hemisphere. So we need to start bringing some of them back up this way. So Dean, there's still hope for you in South Africa, mate. So how did you buy the second one? You said here a second one bought by accident. How does that work? What I did was I I put in an offer and tried to get a good price on the first one. And then I put the opening bid on the second one saying, okay, look, I mean, if I I don't get the first one, at least I'm in there for the second one and I can start, you know, bidding against someone. As it turned out, no one else bidded for it. So I actually got it on the opening bid. Well, you will definitely not have a problem unloading these, whether it's to Anthony or somebody else, because these cameras are... I'm giving Anthony first choice. Yeah, this this is perhaps the most aptly named camera ever because it absolutely is superb. Well, now that we've we've we're into Theo's list, for those of you who may not know, we're all we're all trying to help Mike because Mike has lost his guess. He's it's gone. Uh, he's gone. I mean, he's got he gone. has no desires. Done. So it's obvious that they've all gone to Australia because Theo, <laughs> Theo is trying to corner the market right now yep. on everything that's cool. And we're not even done with the list yet. Yeah, well, I got jealous, Paul. You had all these boxes coming to your place, so I had to do something. The difference is I'm not selling them on. So I'm, not, <laughs> right. I'm not quite sure my strategy is working. All right, what's this next foot, Footlander? It's a, it's a Virtus. Um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, Anthony. You're, you're more familiar with these ones. It's a 6 by 4 0.5 centimeter folding rangefinder camera. It's got a scopa lens, 75 millimeter. Interesting, the Virtus was the first camera to have parallax corrected viewfinder coupled to the lens. That's what I found online. It looks absolutely stunning. I actually love the little stamp, the Voigtlander stamp on it because it matches the superb, it matches the brilliant I've already got from the 1930s as well. So I've got a nice little Voigtlander collection going there. Well, we've talked about this before, but you know the Superbs are parallax corrected, right, too, where the, the top yes. lens points down. So it's a, it's a typical TLR, and as you close focus, the viewing lens and the entire mirror box tilt forward so that it's pointing, correcting for parallax. So that's probably – that must have been like a thing they were going for that they applied to the Virtus because they're from the exact same era. Yeah. So, so then I ended up with a – Voigtlander Vitessa L, the version one, with the Ultron lens. I couldn't let yes. that go by. Yes. So um, I love the plunger. I love the, the barn doors. It's They're just superb. I love that camera. I, my one and only gripe about the Vitessas, especially the Ultrons, is the, the infuriating uh, EV exposure value coupling little, it's a tiny little tab that couples yeah. the shutter speeds and... Um, f-stops together it's, it's very similar to how the retinas work you have to move this tiny little tab to to break the coupling but other than that though those cameras are, are outstanding and that ultron lens is, is as good as any out there so, so then i moved on to the zeisses and got the icon calibri 
which is another 127 camera. Now this one looks really cool because it's all it's it's like a flat little camera, but it's uh it's got the the five centimeter Tesla, so it's a little bit wide, being a 127 camera. Miles Lieback, I sent one of those to you, right? Yep. Yep. Have I you had a chance to it. shoot the Calibri? What would you, what'd what'd you your think thoughts about it? on it? It's a really neat camera. It's very small, I think, for a 127 camera. And what I like about it is the viewfinder is on the short end of the camera, so its natural orientation is portrait. I mean, you can shoot it any way you want, but just the way it feels most comfortable to hold is portrait, which which is a little different. Yeah, and it, it's a collapsible. Uh, the lens collapses into the body. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very compact. So you really got good good results from that, then, huh? Yep. The final two here from New Zealand. Um, I had Anthony swearing at me because I got myself an, a Super Conta C. A 530 slash two, which is the the 120 rangefinder camera, which shoots six by nine, and it can't shoot six by four point five with the the mask, of course, uh, with the Triotar lens, the 10.5. Um, but then the second encounter, the Contar D, which is the 530 slash uh, 15, really annoyed Anthony because he's been looking, uh, he had been looking one. I think he's he's sort of come across one for a long, long time. This is the the 616 version that um, shoots six and a half by 11 centimeter frames. So um, I'm quite uh, keen to, to try that one out. Well, because of you, I, uh, I just, I could not let that go unanswered. And so I put the screws to Paul who had his friend Igor who had one in inventory and it's now down here in Florida. I just cleaned it up. I just shot a roll of Gewehrt, uh 1947 expired 616 film. And it's, I just posted some to our internal group. I'll post it on the on the website. It's it's uh it's it's spooky shooting this this film. It's like through the the haze of time, and uh, but the camera, I mean, the, the, these negatives are massive. Uh, but the one thing that um, you know, I've been kind of like worried about how am I going to develop this six one six film because it's, it's it's a seventy millimeter wide film, so it won't fit in any one twenty reel, and it won't fit you know it won't fit in your your scanning jigs. Until I saw the first thing that, that I found useful on YouTube in film photography and ages, uh, it's, it's the easiest hack. If you've got a three tank or a three reel Patterson tank, you take a, uh, you take one reel apart and you put it together backwards so that the uh, the smaller diameter half of the reel goes through the larger one, and you put that down on the bottom of the spindle, and then you take the small spindle from a second reel and slide it down so that it matches it, it actually touches the the small spindle coming up from the other side and it is exactly 70 millimeters and you can just load it just like a uh, a regular patterson wheel uh, and a reel and it just i mean it was and the ratcheting a, still works fine absolutely everything worked perfectly fine wow and there was enough tension on the spindle to hold it together and uh, I mean, it was no more difficult to load and develop than any. Well, for me, it was a 85 year old roll of film. Um, how, so a, how curly was it? Was it, it was really, really pretty curly? damn curly? But I was able to get it to catch. And once I That's started good. ratcheting it, it loaded and I, I had no problem with developing. Nothing was touching. Wow. Now I shot the film. It was, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't love shooting hyper expired high-speed film and this was a uh, 27 den 400 iso film from 1947 uh so i shot it at at 50 iso really need to shoot it at 10 because i just kind of got some ghost images on it but the camera works 
and you know the, i got images there they, you know mike was saying that they they kind of looked like some sort of norwegian death metal uh, album cover uh <laughs> but that that hack of using three parts of a patterson reel to develop 70 millimeter film is the coolest developing hack I have learned in at least a year. Yeah, I'm going to have to try that myself because I do have a Bakelite tank from probably the 50s that does 116, 616. And it, it, it's it's a typical uh, reel, but it doesn't separate. The spindle is just one piece. So it doesn't ratchet at all like a Patterson. And it also doesn't have that center clip like a stainless reel have. You literally just have to push the film through and spiral it around and it's just really really hard to do so uh, i like your idea uh the thing you found i'm gonna have to try that we'll include a link to the instructions in the show yeah, notes i'll, put, the I'll show. put some i'll put some photos up on the uh, instagram and just to add one last thing in case anybody is just curious but 616 was another kodak invention uh it was to 116 as 620 was to 120 so it's the exact same film as 116 anthony said 70 millimeters it's just it comes on smaller spools and the little tab that like when you turn the film advance knob on the camera that grips the spool and spins it is much smaller so sticking real 116 spools in a camera designed for 616 almost never works but i I imagine that for theo and for me we'll we'll get the most use out of these uh super iconta d's by by doing a little hack to adapt it to be able to, to to shoot 120 which involves using spacers and then creating a shim so that the film has like a, a flat path through the gate uh, because the 120 yeah. is going to be about an eighth of an inch shy of the gate on either side. Six six by 11 um, panos sound yeah. very enticing. Yeah, absolutely. And then I, I couldn't stop with the uh, with the Super Iconta D. I couldn't let, let, let Theo have all of the glory this week. Uh, <laughs> so I, I succumbed to another camera that I'd been stalking for a while and uh, it, it hasn't shipped yet from the Netherlands, but I picked up a uh, a Zeiss Icon Cokeret Lexus, which is another 616 camera. Uh, doesn't have the focusing uh, bit of the uh, uh, of the you know from the Super Icontas, um, but this is a beautiful camera. Um, it you know it has its own sort of design aesthetic. It's a little bit cleaner. You know, Mike can talk more about this because I've never actually used the Cokeret yet, but it's got a uh, um, it, it looks a bit like a um, like a early Leica and that the bottom comes off, but in, as opposed to like pushing the film in, it's like a cartridge that pulls all the way out right. that you load the film onto. The entire film compartment, including the gate, slides out of the bottom of the camera. So it, it's a bottom loader, but it's not accurate to say like a Leica because in a Leica, you just kind of push the film into the camera. With the Cokerettes, the entire bottom and the insides come out you attach the take-up spool on one side. You stretch it across the film gate like you would in any other camera. So you basically have your two spools in, your film stretched across, and then you take the entire thing and just shove it back into the camera and tighten it down. The most obvious benefit to that is no light leaks really can come into those. I mean, you might still get pinholes through the bellows, but you're, you're pretty much guaranteed to not get any film I'm sorry, light leaks onto the film that way. Uh, but I will say, though, that um, it's kind of a fragile experience, too, because something that large um, is your Cokerette. It's a 116? It is. 
okay, so the bigger it is, the even more ungainly it might be. <laughs> I, I have a review of a Coke Red on my site. Uh, I was lucky enough to have a 120 version, so it's slightly smaller. But you just got to be really, really careful. Make sure everything's lined up properly. There's a tiny little – it's hard to describe, but there's sort of like a clip that you have to make sure that the film is feeding under. Uh, that kind of helps maintain flatness, and if you don't have the backing paper correctly in there, it won't slide into the camera. So just go real slow the first time you lose you use it. Um, a real another cool thing about all the cocorettes is because you can't ever get to the back of the the lens, um, they all have like a big like kind of peephole in the back of the camera that that twists out and allows you to see through. So you can still actually clean the rear lens element if you need to on those, even though the camera doesn't actually swing open, but um, really, really cool find for all you guys. Any of the, any other people that are on the show? Alex, Aiden, um, anybody else? Pick up anything new? Dan Tree, Miles. I know Paul has boxes and boxes of cameras, and and Anthony has, I think, a Rolly story for us. But um, Alex, we haven't heard from you all episode. Is there anything new you've picked up? I mean, yeah, I I've been uh, I've been steadily acquiring uh, my Nikon thread mount uh lens set to uh to go with my other leica gear uh and so happened to uh come across uh finally getting into the tellies so i came across a 10525 um actually had the what appears to be the original hood and cap uh, unfortunately don't have it with me right now but it is uh while a monster i'm really looking forward to seeing results from that lens because everybody talks about it in all the various formats it came in um but uh i found it and uh had a little viewfinder as well with it uh, but i love those nikors uh and uh i'm steadily finding more and more <laughs> one you want to really look for that's really in demand is the 3518 in screw mount okay better than anything like it made at that time all right also the 25 f4 in screw mount is a fantastic little lens you know but they made everything in screw mount from 25 up to uh 500 in screw mount. and those are two of the two of the ones that i don't have or, or haven't had uh, i've got the three 35 two five right i had the 35 three five the 51 four the 50 f2 the 105 two five so i need the 85 and i'd love that 35 one eight but even the 20 the uh, 25 was pretty unique yeah, it is. And it's very, very small, very tiny. I mean, you can walk around with that around your neck and never have a problem. It's, it'll fit in any pocket. Yeah, it's important to remember in that era, you know, we all talk about Nikon rangefinders, but, you know, Nippon Kugaku made far more lenses than they ever did cameras. You know, oh, there were yeah. a lot more people shooting Leicas back then. So they made a bulk of their money selling lenses, not cameras. Um, I, I shared a fact in a previous episode. If you took every single model starting from the original Nikon 1 all the way through the SP, the S3, even the S4, and added up total production of all Nikon rangefinders combined, from start to finish, it's still less than the number of Canon 7s. One model. It's less than, the, less than the, like an M3. Right. You know, Canon had like 35 different rangefinder models right. back then. So the Canon 7, that one model, they made more of those than all Nikon rangefinders combined. So just to give but you an idea. The numbers that we've been able to verify over the years, it appears that they made a total of about 135,000 over yeah. 13 years. Okay. Right. They made 800,000 Canon rangefinders. They made 230,000 M3s. 
So just based on numbers, the Nikons are less common, much less common. So finding those lenses, there's a lot of them out there. They're really, yes. really good. I mean, now do they, Robert, do they have the 35 millimeter F2.5 in screw mount also? Oh yeah, they have them all. The 25, yeah. all the 35s, all the 50s, including the micro, by the way. I had a micro in screw mount once. It's a very nice lens. And all the tellies. The only thing that they never made in, in screw mount was the 21. There's a rumor they did, but it's never been found. And the stereo and the 1000. But they made the 500 in screw mount because I had one once. They made the 180s, the 250s, the 350. Then everything else, the one all the 135s, all the 85s were all made in screw mount. The 511 in screw mount is a very hard lens to find, but it's out there. I'll share my uh, thrifty buyer's tip, Robert. You shared with me quite a while ago. But if if you are looking for a 35 millimeter Nikon rangefinder lens, the 25 is kind of the, in the middle. There was the 1.8, the 2.5, and the 3.5. Uh, but if you're a cheapskate like I am and can't afford the real rangefinder one, get the, Nik the Nikonos 2, the underwater camera. Usually those are found with the 35mm f2.5. And even though it's a completely different camera, the lens is optically identical. identical. It is the same lens. So for what you would pay for one of those rangefinder lenses, you could probably buy three Nikonos cameras. <laughs> and again... It's a totally different camera. I get it. But optically, it's exactly the same. And, and, and I, also, I love that lens. And also optically, the 3.3525 is actually the best lens of the trio optically. It's better. The 1.8 is there for speed, okay? And it's a very good lens, but the 2.5 is better. And the 3.5 is just a Tessar. It's just a Tessar formula. And it's, you know, at 3.5, it's kind of maxed out. It, it's a usable lens, but the 35.25, if you just want 135 to shoot with, that's the best one. Great, hundred percent. And I, I do have that. That's the lens Paul sold me. So I have it in, in Nikon mount, but I also have the Nikonos. And I'll tell you, the Nikonos is a fun camera to shoot. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't know that I, I would try shooting them underwater. You know, Anthony tried. He shared that story too and just had nothing but leaks. But the 2.5 is an above and below water lens. Yes. You could shoot it fine above ground. And uh, that camera is really, really bulletproof. So um, cool. So Alex, you're, you're adding to your, your Nikon uh, or Nikkor, I should say, screw mount. Now, what do you, what bodies do you put those on? Either I, well, this is actually kind of a fun one. So I've got an M4, but then I found an M2 that I suspect was, uh, and somebody could correct me if I'm wrong. It's not an M2R, but I, I suspect it had the loading system changed to match the M4 loading. Uh, but it is truly an m2 all the way around but so between the m2 and the m4 and then i also recently got from uh, a classic connection i bought a leica 3 that serial number is a leica 3 chrome but again i think some of the production was varied as to what came out in black paint so this one is a black paint leica 3 um, but those are the three main bodies i like to like to shoot those lenses on very cool very very nice Dan Tree, have you picked up anything recently? Uh, you guys talked me into the Rolly 35S. There you go. I ended up, yeah, I shot my first roll through it, and I liked it enough that I made a strap <laughs> for it. I can't do a wrist strap, so I ended up doing, uh, you know, a longer one, and then like a little soft release. But yeah, I, I now that I've actually been able to use it in the field, I it's going to be probably a favorite of mine. How, how did you find it ergonomically? Was it way better than I thought? Yeah, it, it's weird at first because of the left hand thing and loading. It's different you know but once i got going with it i love it yeah it's 
uh, been with me for the last couple of weeks. So, Dan, have you tried to shoot it upside down? Uh, no, I'd shoot it just uh, right side up, I guess. Yeah, I, I started, I found that I, if I held it upside down, you know, I mean, it's well known that I don't like that camera at all. But when I did, when I shot, when I shot with it upside down, I actually liked it better than I did shooting it right side up. <laughs> the, the film advance was in the right place and uh, uh, it, it just was easier for me to handle it. You could have the flash point in the right direction that way. Well, so that's exactly right. That was the other thing. I had a little Rolly 16 flash yeah. that uh, I shot with it and that, that kept it in the right position. Yeah, I hate the word fanboy. You know, I mean, there's certain cameras certain people like, but with the exception of Paul, we've been promoting Raleigh 35s quite a bit. Um, and, and they well, are expensive. You've, really been, you've been promoting the King regulars too. No, we haven't. <laughs> I really, really like the King regulars. Um, but I, you know, the Raleigh 35, you know, for those, you know, which lens is on yours, Dan? Uh, it's the sonar, the sonar. Okay. And that's, that's obviously yeah, sonar, a, HFT, but yeah. All right. It's a great lens. Um, I have, I've only ever shot the Tessars. Well, that's not true. I shot Anthony's. It has the Schneider. Well, I, just, I know my my brain, if I didn't get the best one, yeah, I would just obsess that I didn't save up a little bit more for the, the best one. So well, then I, I would say my advice to you is never get the Tessar then. Since okay. you already have the sonar, you get the Tessar, you're going to be like, wow, this is just as good. Why did I spend yeah. so much money on the sonar? Well, and and so I, got it for, it. I got it for a pretty good price, you know, overall yeah. for the black, black one. So like, I think it was $50 less for the Tessars I was seeing on eBay. So I felt pretty good about it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. It's good to hear. Are there any underrated uh, Rolly 35 models that that uh, maybe don't uh, command as high of a price? I mean, I see some of the XFs or the B35s. Um, this uh, LED is quite a cheaper. But that's got the triotar, right? Yep, correct. Yeah, I was going to say it, but, but he grabbed one. Yeah, this one's quite cheap. Despite what I said, you can still find amazing cameras down here. Um, but this is in fantastic condition. Um, I've just got to do a battery hack to obviously get the voltage right, but you can pick the, you pick this up for um, a fraction of what the other 35s yeah. go for. It's the first one. There was one called the B, I think the Raleigh 35B. Any of the ones mm. with the Triotar, they're they're actually still very good. Uh, but you do yeah, bring yeah, up a good point, Dean. None of them. Another problem though is none of the Raleigh's have uh, what they call them bridge circuits that will properly adapt. Um, Correct. alkaline batteries to the correct mercury voltage so you have to use either one uh some kind of um like a wine cell we talked about yeah. those in a previous episode those adapters mm -hmm. yeah there's some cameras you can get away with it but those you cannot dean doesn't that camera use a, a vx a v27 px27 battery yeah vx that correct so the there's some battery that the Minox 35 took yes absolutely so there is someone who's got a replacement. I did some research a couple of weeks back. I mean, I've had it a couple of weeks. I've been using um, an external meter. I've got a little Dumo and um, one of the Reveni meters. So it's not been a problem. Um, I don't really need the meter. Um, so overall, I just got to get in contact with a guy. He says he's got some replacement batteries. There's some sort of replacement battery. In the U.S., there's a company called XL, E-X-E-L. E-X-E-L. Uh, they they're the only source I've found for V27s, okay. but they're very good. I mean, they're uh, mm. 
they uh, they last a long time and they're they're an accurate voltage. My other vo vote for an affordable version of the Roll I thirty five is the TE the test the with the test RE. Uh, they had a short run towards the end where they uh, got rid of the the match needle on the top plate and moved to a, a diode in the viewfinder. Uh, not very well loved among the the Rolei thirty five community, uh, and generally considerably less expensive than even just the standard uh, 35T or just the, the 35 with the Tessar. Uh, I had one. Uh, unfortunately, mine was just worn out by the previous user and ended up as a parts camera. But you can still find them for considerably less than even just the standard 35T. And there's, the, I mean, I don't know, does it bother you that it doesn't have that sort of mid-century modern match needle on the top and that you're looking at a, an LED on the inside of the viewfinder doesn't bother me at all. Not at all. No, me either. Wayne, have you picked up anything recently? Anything new to share? Yeah, I, I cleaned up the Hymatic. I was cleaning on the last year, the Eurovision episode. Right, I remember that. I can, I'm happy to report shoots wonderfully. I just developed another role. Aside from that, yeah, the this Agfa Carrot, which is another incredible camera. Now, what is that a rapid one or is it a 35 yeah, millimeter? It's a rapid. Okay. Oh, Very cool. Does that also have the rangefinder that goes right across the whole viewfinder? Yep. Mm. Yeah. They they didn't get rid of that until the Agfa Carrot 4. So any any Agfa Carrot you see with the two rectangular windows on top means it has the cool rangefinder. And what I mean by cool is the entire viewfinder is the rangefinder. So it's still like all in one the viewfinder rangefinder combined but essentially just try in your head picture looking through a viewfinder and the top half of the image slides vertically with a seam going down the middle and when when the entire image lines up you're in proper focus so for people like me with with terrible vision using early uh rangefinders is difficult because you know, sometimes it's difficult to get like the camera close enough to your eye without scratching the lenses on your glasses but with the uh the carats um, you don't even need to hold it super close to your face. Just by simply looking through, if any part of the image lines up, then you're properly in focus. But yeah, I, I love those cameras. They're really cool. I have one, Wayne, like that, that uses the Carats, um, but the shutter's gummed up, and, and I just haven't gotten around to cleaning it. But I, I definitely want to shoot one of those That's soon. just a simple computer rapid, so... It is. Yeah, I just it's a matter of time, not yeah. you know, difficulty. <laughs> cool. And the legendary Carat green goo the green goo oh yeah definitely yeah. mine was the focus was just locked it's locked yeah and if they right. do move if you in a tip too if you find a carat that's really really stiff do not force it nope you will bend the arm it, the the goo is stronger than the metal is so if you try to force a really stuck one after a while you'll start to twist the arm and you'll you'll just never get it back properly i also got this neat What's little that? box lubitel Oh, Louvatel. Okay. I've never seen the box. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'll post a picture on it. It's mint. It was never used. It's incredible. I'm, I think, mid-70s? No, early. Between 65 and 74 is according to uh, Soviet cams. I forgot I got this. It reminds me of my recent pickup. Um, I'm not even going to attempt to try and pronounce this. It's in English. It's C-H-A-I-K-A. It's the Soviet half-frame camera. The Chaika. Chaika. Yeah. So I got this one in the in the box. Original box is actually in pretty good shape. The case, I think these things look really neat. I haven't shot this one yet, uh, but it's a half frame camera. It's very heavy. 
considering its size, I should say. But, you know, mostly metal. A lot of these Soviet cameras from this era use egregious amounts of plastic. Uh, but it's, I like it because it's got kind of the front shutter releases on the front of the camera. Um, it's a typical Soviet triplet, Indostar 69, 28mm. This one has a selenium meter that responds to light. I have no idea how accurate it is. Four shutter speeds. And I always like the eph ephemera. You know, it's got the original manual. Some kind of, in Russian, probably a camera passport is my guess. I always like finding that those extra little things, you know, in the box. Or, or if you get a camera bag, sometimes you dig in a pocket you see something neat but is that before your antique gas mate this was this was before the cutoff yes before <laughs> the cutoff i told you the 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 f2as was the end that will be the last camera i ever buy we will see how long that lasts one of my favorite things i had in a camera that i bought was a note on the back of it that said helen take off the lens cap <laughs> <laughs> how often do you guys come across cameras where they've engraved their social security number yeah i've got a, i've got several it was a simpler time that's so, I mean, I think it's kind of neat almost. It's almost like a sign of the times that people were so frivolous with something like a social security number that they're just yeah. writing it on stuff. In fact, I went to uh, Purdue University uh, in 97. And even as late as that, when you got your grades posted, that's how they identified you as your social security number. You would just walk up yeah, to that a bulletin board. Number. That was your student number. So you would just walk out your classroom. I mean, it didn't list your name, so, I mean, they weren't necessarily linking it. But, I mean, if you were a thief, you would know, hey, here's a huge list of valid Social Security numbers. Yeah. But that's, you know, and that was 97, so we're talking, you know, not that long ago. Because that's a form of identification in the U.S., isn't it? Oh, it is, yeah. yeah. That's, that's, the, that's the ID number. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's other ways that scammers can get you, too, but they get your Social Security number. That's not good news. I never knew you were a Boilermaker. I only went one, one year. I didn't okay. like it. But I went one year. In honor of uh, Paul's post uh, last week, I mounted the the Millennium Edition on the Leica. Oh, cool! <laughs> and uh, it's weird. Yeah, it does look a little weird. I had a question for Robert. Um, other than I think the... we lost we lost him. Oh, we did. Okay. Yeah, he signed off. What, what's what's the Millennium Edition though? Oh, yeah, so just... that's just like the the colloquial term for the the S three that came out in two thousand. Is it the thirty five one eight? It's a one four. No, this is the fifty-one-four. That is oh, okay. Okay. Supposedly copying the the Olympic fifty-one-four. Uh, I, I see. That came out for I don't know if that was the sixty or sixty-four Olympics, and then the the SP two thousand five came out with the reissue of the thirty-five-one-eight. Yeah, um, okay. The thirty-five-one-eight is a reissue, right? It's not an exact copy, but it's very close. Yeah, and I guess my question was because Robert had mentioned that Nikon farmed out some of the parts making for the kit. And I was curious how far that went. Um, if, and if any of the lenses were. No, it, it was just the, the, what they farmed out were the parts like the uh, advanced lever and the rewind crank and uh, probably some parts of the back, you know, small shop type stuff. Sure. Sure. And, and oddly enough, part of the problem they had during the process of building the camera, they went to the original uh, plans, the original uh, blueprints of the parts and back when they made them originally, the blueprints were made by looking down at, a, at the, the, the uh, part. And now they no longer do that. They look at it from a different angle and they use the wrong view. So they, they had to redo. They had parts they couldn't use. Uh, there were top plates that uh, they had to just totally discard them. They had like thousands of them because they, they just simply didn't fit. They went to the wrong size. 
are the parts between the like original S3 and reissue S3 interchangeable? I don't know that. Okay. I, I just don't know. I'm sure there might be a few, but probably not. You know, they probably were just made to different tolerances. Yeah. And some of them, they had different, the, the, you know, they were like a different shutter speed dial had, uh, uh, they, they, there were some cosmetic differences and, and some yeah. that were just slightly different in, in the way they fit. The alloys could have been different as well. The actual makeup of the the metal itself. Yeah. Uh, obviously like with, yeah. Obviously, with 50 years in between, there'd be a bit of a difference in how that's put together. And Paul, I had one last question for you. What's the what's the minimum focus distance on that Contaflex? I'm assuming it's the 50 mil. On. Yeah, it's it's the 50. Uh, I didn't notice. Okay. You know, the Contaflex is a weird camera because the viewing lens is an 80 millimeter and the taking lens, the, the camera had interchangeable lenses. As Wayne, I think, mentioned uh, uh, earlier, it's it, it has interchangeable lenses. Uh, the one I have is the 50 millimeter, which I think was the standard, but the viewing lens is different from the taking lens. So you selling that camera or you keeping it? I want to sell it. I, you know, I, I, I fired it, the shutter fires and all that. But, you know, it's one of those things that I, it would take me so long to learn how to use it. <laughs> and then I wouldn't use it. I, I shot a roll today with the Super Icona C, which I just got. You know, it's the Super Icona C, you, you advance the film by looking at the red windows and you crank it till you see the numbers come up. Well, I, I had noticed it, but it didn't register on me that the felt had uh, worn away between the red window and the pressure plate. So I had uh, serious light leaks on every frame all the way. Across. Well, it was actually just in the middle of every frame because when I was cranking it, it, it was uh, going by fast enough. It didn't. It was going by fast damage. enough. It didn't. Yeah. That must have been a running change because on my C, uh, there's the sliding metal door. Yeah, it has the metal door too, but you've got to, I guess what I wasn't doing was closing the door. Yeah. While I was walking around with it, I probably should have done that. And I just didn't think to, but I could see that some of the felt is worn away. I mean, there's little threads of felt visible. So, so I know that's gone. That's an easy fix though, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I've got some very thin uh, felt pads I can trim to fit. So I'll share... I, I shared the Shika, the Russian camera. I'll share this one. Uh, Your other last camera. My other now this one's a, a loner, so this the, <laughs> people still send me crap all the time. But um, no, this is a replica. This is a Null series Leica. So this is um, a replica of the cameras that Lights produced in 1924 when they made the decision to take Oscar Barnack's exposure tester camera. And they were going to turn it into a camera that they were going to sell. But they made, it's debatable. Some people say 24, I think there's 27. Now I think some people think there might have been 30. But they made these cameras and gave them out to uh, photographers in the area and said, hey, we created that. Now, like, you remember, Lights was a microscope company back then. They weren't known for cameras. But they said, we made a camera. Here, shoot it. Tell us what you think. And a bunch of photographers shot it. They came back and said, this thing is fantastic. We really, really like it. Uh, remember, at the time, 35 millimeter wasn't considered a serious format for still photography. But between the lens that was on it, using a double image, which is what we normally call 24 by 36. But back then, it was a double image. Uh, they were really, really impressed with the quality of it. And they got enough feedback to where Lights decided to build the Leica 1, which you know they didn't release until the next year. But this is a replica. 
these paul you could tell a little bit about these these were sold to dealers what around like 2002 2003 maybe yeah they they put them on the market i think they were i think they were around three thousand dollars and uh they didn't sell but they're very very finicky to use you they don't have a second shutter curtain, so you have to cap right. the shutter when you wind the film. Right. There's the the shutter curtains have a depending on how you set the speeds, and it doesn't even have speeds on here. It's got this kind of weird, like where the shutter speed dial is. It's got these weird numbers that I don't quite understand. I'll yeah, have to it's, learn how to yeah. do that. Those are distances between the shutters curtains. I think. Yep. I think that's yes, what it is. That's what it's varying. Right. So 50 means oh, wow. there's 50 millimeter gap between the, the opening and that gap is always there. So what Paul's saying is when the f- shutter is fired or completely cocked, it's blocking the film gate. But as you're winding it, that gap is moving across the film plane and you have to have the lens cap on. Otherwise, while you're cocking it, you will be exposing your film. So this one is the replica. It works fine. The only thing it's missing, and I think the guy that this belongs to intentionally took it off, but there's a little hook here on the side that a string, just a regular string in the original lens cap should go. So like when you would take it off, it would hang from a string and you wouldn't lose it. But I have instead just kind of, it's a regular plastic Leica lens cap. So I'll be doing a review of this. Like Paul said, they were $3,000 back then. I don't want to know what they're worth today. They actually, Leica couldn't sell them. And uh, so they made a deal with uh, certain dealers that if you bought $50,000 worth of lenses, they would give you two or three cameras. So we wound up with, uh, I think we had six of them all together. And and I got one and shot one roll of film through it and (laughs) found a new home for it. It was just too finicky for me to Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can tell just by handling. I mean, it's impressively made for replica. It's got some weight to it. The paint or enamel is very, very nice. Everything about it seems nice, but I, I tell you, I will. This will be one of those cameras like the Hasselblad X-Pan that I will actually be relieved when I'm sending it back. So look forward to a review of a null series replica like a, a camera I will never permanently own. We've hit the hour and 40 minute mark. So we've had some massive gas. We've talked about auctions. Uh, does anybody have any questions for, for us or anything you want to bring up before we go? I um, actually mailed Paul about this, but we might, it might be a bigger subject. I wanted to ask you guys about your display and um, care habits, how everybody kind of handles keeping their cameras. I've just moved house. And I'm about to unbox 80 to 100 cameras. I know that uh, the Floridian has to keep everything in the box. We, we have dry heat, at least in this country. But it was just really a big topic for me of how to handle a collection of 80 to 100 cameras. We have no, not major humidity in this country. Do, the, do you guys wind the cameras every now and again? Do you regularly clean? Obviously, that's been a big question. How stored? I see, obviously, there's glass for a lot of people. I've got a cupboard in the corner. I think glass is actually a good point because it get, they get dusty very quickly. So for me, glass is a, is, a, is a mandatory piece. Now, here in Sydney, we don't quite have the, the Florida-type humidity um, yeah. because we don't have swamps and alligators running around everywhere. 
but we do get quite a lot of humidity here. I actually have a dehumidifier running in this room whenever I'm not in it because it's just too noisy, but it, it literally keeps the room down to about the 50% mark uh, or thereabouts for the humidity just to make sure there's, there's no growth happening. Yeah. In terms of trying them out, every time, what I also do is I put in the, you know, the silica gel little yeah. containers in each of the, the shelves. And every three months or so, you have to change those over. Yeah. A couple of months over. When I go to change those over, I then run through the cameras and, and fire them and, and move them along just to make sure that they're not locking up. Because by keeping the room, that's, that's the double-edged sword, by keeping the room down to the 50% mark, you're actually in danger of drawing out a lot of the lubricants as well. So you, you, you just need to sort of um, balance that out that way. Mm. And that's the only way I can keep them on display and, and not have to resort to putting them into boxes because it's the combination of the glass, the you know, trying, you know, moving them every so often and the dehumidification. Yeah, that would be my best advice yeah. is, you know, eliminate humidity. That should be your number yeah. one priority. You know, for people living in tropical areas, I know like in Hong Kong and even Japan where there's high levels of humidity, it's it's a big issue. You know, Anthony, you're in Florida. I'm in Indiana, Northwest Indiana. I'm in a basement. You know, I mean, some people would say, God, never store a camera in a basement. But I have, I don't know where it is, but I have a humidifier with a humidity meter, whatever it would be. And it, it rarely gets to 60%, even without running mm. the dehumidifier. So um, it, it's generally in that nice range of 50 where like you're not getting static shocks every time you touch something metal. But on the other hand, there's really never any moisture in the air. So if you have that luxury, I liked Theo's idea, the silica gel packets. Uh, for yeah. a while there, I had cameras in like a china cabinet, and every time my wife would order some shoes or something, they always have the silica gel packets that come in the box, and I would just toss them in there. So after a while, I'd go reach for a camera, and there'd be like three or four empty silica gel packets out there. I mean, anything you could do to control it. Dust isn't going to hurt anything. I mean, it's, it, sure, mm. it's ugly. It's not going to look pretty. You know, so, you know, get a feather duster every once in a while. A lot of common sense stuff. I don't know that there's a ton yeah. of maintenance. I mean, remember, these things are already half a century old, and they probably were kept in a shoebox in a closet for for majority of that time. In the U.S., there's a product that you can buy in supermarkets and hardware stores called Damp Rid that comes in about a half liter uh, tub, and it's basically silica gel that's reusable. Uh, it's, it's loose in this oh. plastic tub, and uh, it absorbs moisture. And once it absorbs a lot of moisture, you put it in the oven for uh, at a very low temperature for a little while. And yeah, so that, and that's it. I mean, it just it takes it away. My basement is 31% uh, year round. And I keep the cameras. I've got 500 cameras on the hand at any, at any time. And they're all on uh, metal wire shelves so, the, so that the, uh, the air circulates around them. And I found that's that's been the best way to, to store them. Yeah, thirty percent in a basement is really yeah. dry. That's that's and, and I'm in Southwest Ohio, which is very humid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, my air conditioner also dries it out in this in the winter or the summer, right. and the furnace will actually add a little moisture to it because the winters are very dry. But uh, I have a dehumidifier that runs all the time. Is that the experience you have, Dean, in South Africa? Well, I'm actually, yeah. I mean, we're very lucky. Johannesburg's a very dry heat. You very rarely get any humidity problems. Generally, even when I'm thrifting, you rarely see fungus on the lenses unless they've been stored in a really um, 
bad spot. But overall, I've had no real problems. What I find generally you seeing is obviously seized cameras, the stuff that hasn't been fired, stuff that hasn't been kind of, especially lenses are sticking, those sorts of things. So I try and keep the, the cameras um, at least working. That's why the open shelf is any camera that is working. It's got some film in it. It's going out. If it's not working, goes into the cupboard so it doesn't collect dust. But I don't generally keep many cameras except some of the sort of antique cam antique antiques um, as display cameras. But overall, it was just more a question of what you find. Uh, even on the auctions, you're finding more seized items, uh, gummed up, obviously lubricant, those sorts of things. So there's clearly not a, a humidity problem unless you go down to the coast. If you're going down to Durban, which is east, or down south to Cape Town, where there may be markets, there you're seeing cameras that have got the problems, but not really in Johannesburg. Well, I don't have anything else. It's been wonderful chatting with uh, such a nice group of people. Uh, I like seeing first-time callers. Aiden, you know, thank you for joining. Alex, it's been wonderful to get to know you a little bit better. Dean, you know, thank you for joining. I, Paul had oh. mentioned he was talking to you from South Africa. I'm like, oh, okay, he'll probably want to join the next Euro show. And he's like, no, I think he's going to come on tonight. So that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, Mark Beadle was here for a short while. really didn't get a chance to talk. Uh, he works the graveyard shift and sometimes jumps in on our show. So we did have a pretty international show tonight, all things considered. Uh, Wayne, where are you from again? Belgium. Belgium, that's right. Okay. So we, we had uh, we had a decent group of people here, even though this was our not. We should probably stop calling them Euro shows because then we can get people from other, other areas too, like south africa and stuff like that too we don't yet have anything planned for next week's episode we're in a little bit of a conundrum here because exactly two weeks from tonight is memorial day here in the u.s which i think a lot of people will be busy so i think the tentative plan is to try and move that to sunday which for theo is actually then monday but he doesn't celebrate the holiday but then he's got work to do so we haven't quite figured out what we're going to do yet for episode 27 but we have some ideas of things we want to talk about uh certainly more gas we want to encourage as many people to join us, ask questions. Uh, even if it's something we've covered before, it, they always tend to go in, in unique directions. It's always wonderful to get a chance to talk to different people. Mike Kaplan, here is your uh, Footlander Vito 3 that I'll be sending back to you this week. He he sent this to me on loan, a wonderful camera. Um, you know, I, 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 I talked about my, kind, my contacts one. I'll be shooting that soon here too. Uh, Miles... What do I have of yours, Miles? I can't remember. <laughs> oh, no, it's the Ensign. Yeah, yeah. The Ensign, the self-fix we talked about. I, I accidentally credited that to Mario Piper in, in a previous episode. So so I have Miles' Ensign 820. He has the Zeiss Calibri. And, oh, you have the Exacta too, the VP. Yes. Did you get a chance to shoot that? I haven't shot that yet. Um, Isn't it scary? The first time I, I fired the shutter and then it wouldn't fire again, I panicked. <laughs> <laughs> you got to remember to extend the lens. Yeah. Yeah. The the original Vest Pocket 127 exact is will not fire the shutter properly unless you get the lens past this sort of like vague infinity point. Believe me, it threw me off too. So uh, no worries. Take your time. Enjoy it. Uh, those are fun cameras. To find those with a not only a working shutter, but a shutter that's not Swiss cheese is pretty impressive. So you could thank Kurt Ingham for that one. But anyway, so um, thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining. Uh, hope to see you guys on the next show. Everybody have a great night, and we'll see you soon. Good night. Thanks, thanks everyone. Thank you, everybody.
All right, guys, I'm going to go. It's midnight. See ya. Yes, yeah, I'm late. I'm getting tired, too, but <laughs> good night, Paul. Good night. I'm tired. Yeah, me too. I'm so tired. We need to stop recording these so late. Mm-hmm.